0: Hi, everybody. This is Chuck Sype Assistant Superintendent from Roxbury Schools here with another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks. Uh, today, we are, have a really exciting topic, in my opinion. I think they're all exciting, but this one is near and dear to my heart because I was a former math teacher. So today, I am joined by a few of my esteemed colleagues uh, that are math professionals and experts in the area to discuss the idea of the math person. So before we get too far into it, let's introduce ourselves. So I'm going to ask everyone to tell us who you are and what you do here in our school district.
1: Hey, guys. So my name is Melissa Jameson. I am an eighth grade math teacher at Eisenhower Middle School, and
2: this is my ninth year teaching Roxbury. Roxbury. So. Hi, everyone. I'm Miss Kelly. I'm the pre-K through six applied sciences supervisor.
3: I'm Jeff Fashina. I am the supervisor of mathematics, business, and family consumer science in grades seven through 12 here at Roxbury.
0: All right. Well, welcome and thanks for joining me for this topic. The, the, the topic of the idea that people think they're good at math or not good at math certainly is grounded in their experiences as a student and their self-image of themselves. And too often that image is framed out by intentional and unintentional learning experiences they had during their time in school, whether that be starting at the earliest ages in elementary school, and probably following them up through high school and into their adult life, and and oftentimes has encouraged or discouraged um, career pathways. So what I really want to talk to you all about today is how do we combat the idea that you can or cannot be good at math, that it's something that is static, and what strategies have we taken here in our school district to to try to debunk that idea, um, including what is probably, in my opinion, too common of an expression in education, which is, you know, like, don't worry, boys and girls, I wasn't very good at math either. And it kind of allows this idea that math isn't quintessential to a variety of elements in your life. Um, And that learning math and persevering and struggling with math like you would struggle with anything else, dribbling a soccer ball, shooting a free throw, trying broccoli you know you would you would continue to engage in activities that make you a more well-rounded person uh, reading a book text that's challenging for you right we don't just give up and write it off as something I'll never be good at so what strategies have we taken how have you encountered that and what ideas do you have about ways parents who are probably our largest audience can help support their child if they're starting to develop that idea like I'm not that good at math I'll never be good at math
3: So one of the things I want to kick this off with is uh, math tends to be much more of a black and white type subject because there is usually some sort of correct answer to get there. Um, There might be more than one approach to get there, but there usually is one correct answer to most uh, questions. So what I've noticed in observations and in my own uh, reflection on my teaching is that students have this feeling that they need to be right the first time they ever answer a question in mathematics because there is a right answer, right? All the examples that you talked about uh, prior to Dr. it's there's ways to kind of go around those. There's ways to approach things, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to math, it's like you have to be right the first time. So students sometimes often are afraid of being wrong. Um, and don't want to try something because there is that weird feeling of having to be right. Um, so ways to combat that and what I've seen um, in different opportunities is honoring everybody's answer, You know, making sure that everybody's answer is heard, making sure that you present a lot on the board, you analyze, you talk about how you could see it, how you could grow from it, and not just hearing one right answer from one student in one class and being like, okay, good, and we move right on to the next thing because that also honors that we're only looking for the right answer, but wrong answers should be just as valued as right answers during any kind of lesson or any kind of learning experience.
2: And I think I'm gonna branch off of something that Jeff said that really enhances upon to the beauty of mathematics, um, especially nowadays, is the idea of that students have this conception that you need to get the one correct answer using the one correct strategy. But as Jeff said, there's multiple strategies for students to use. Um, And going along with the previous podcast based on math, how we were talking about the idea of old math versus new math. And we talked a lot about like our experiences in math when we were younger. I know that we didn't necessarily specify all different strategies that we can use. We were taught one way and you're going to get the answer that one way. Um, nowadays we have a lot of teachers, especially at the elementary levels, I'm sure at the middle school and Mm -hmm. high school levels as well that are really teaching all the strategies. They're showing students all three strategies that they can use to be successful and enter this problem for the students to have more autonomy in their learning where they're getting to choose the strategy that's most applicable to them and is most meaningful and purposeful. And I think that's the big change of like kind of debunking this idea of, being a math person or not being a math person. And I think that goes hand in hand with the idea that, yes, there is one correct answer, but there's not one correct way.
1: Right, yeah, I mean, in my classroom, I just feel like in middle school kids, some of them have kind of made up their mind. I like math, I don't like math. So a lot of what I do, at least um, when I get to talk to parents and all that, is one, you, you can't tell your kid I wasn't good at math because they're gonna think, if you're not good at math, I'm directly related to you, I'm probably not great either. Um, A big thing I like to tell my kids when they come into my class in my first year is just the fact that this is not math class. I want you to view this as a class in problem solving and math is the tool I'm going to teach you to problem solve because they always go, when are we going to learn this or when is this relevant to my life? And there are some things that I'm like exponents, you're not going to need that at a stoplight to go through, Mm -mm. but you're going to need to know how to problem solve in your personal life and using math as a tool to kind of get there is going to help you become stronger in the problem solving area. Mm-hmm. So I try and tell them this is not math class and I really try and disguise some of the things I do in there to get them to like math without them knowing they're liking math and mm-hmm. then hopefully at the end of the day they have a better feeling about my classroom mm-hmm. and not a stressed out feeling when they come in.
2: I f- I fully agree with that yeah. because it was so funny and relating to like a real world scenario, I was sitting at the hair salon and I was mm-hmm. talking to my hairdresser and he was like you know what, he knows I'm a math supervisor, but he's like, I wasn't a math person. I'm not good at math. And I said to him, I hope you're good at math because you do my hair color. (laughs) And like, you need to know math in order to do hair color. You need to problem solve if all of a sudden my hair comes out red and you were trying to get it blonde because the chemicals didn't work or you didn't add the right fractional amounts or anything like that. So kind of like you're saying that problem solving is so embedded within little things and people say they're not a math person, but they use math every day Mm and what they're doing.
0: I got to say, I feel like one of the things that I love about education and being an educator is that idea that we practice what we preach, right? And so one of the things that I feel like is common regardless of the subject and regardless of how old our students are is that idea that you're always learning. Mm -hmm. And so I just have to say this. I would have never thought, so I taught math for a number of years. I've supervised math ever since. I would have never thought to describe it the way you just did, Melissa, and I love that. I'm going to steal it. I'll give you credit, but (laughs) uh, just the idea that math is a vehicle to learn global problem-solving strategies while learning the math is important. Like That whole construct is something I've never considered framing in order to help support students in their growth and confidence. So I, I, I point that out because high five, that is really an awesome way to think about it, and I love it. But it also leads me into another idea. So Joe Baller is a really great math, math mind in our country, and she talks a lot about she's used the idea of productive struggle and growth mindset. And so when I hear you say that, that sounds mm-hmm. a lot like growth mindset. Her work about mathematical mindsets are really important to how we structure that re-encouragement and that reinforcement for students in the vision of themselves as successful problem solvers. I wanted to say mathematicians, but I'm going to right. use your approach there. Um, so I just want to throw that out there and let us talk a little bit about that, because what I heard you guys talk about is honoring the process, celebrating the approach, as opposed to what was once the, the we're going to only celebrate and reward the correct answer. So I love, I heard you say that, the uh, um, supporting students in moving away from the fear of not being right And I see all that tying together, so I want to invite you guys to talk a little bit about how that growth mindset, that mathematical mindset, has become more of the structure that we can utilize to support success and reassurance to students as opposed to the right answer. Mm
2: -hmm. I, I think we have this idea, especially branching off Joe Bowler, that in order to be good at math, you have to be quick at calculations. And she actually has a study out there where she took... Two groups of kids, let's say she had 16 children, um, and she had the 16 children solve math problems, and let's say eight of them did very well because they were good at calculations while the other eight didn't. She then worked with that second group in the study and actually had them go about math instruction in different means where she embedded in growth mindsets, she embedded in discussions She embedded in a lot of like manipulative work with visuals and things like that. And if you look, the study goes into this whole like brain science where these students that were using different parts of their brains in terms of calculating are now using the same parts of their brain as the other students that were quick at calculations because they were exposed to this idea of growth mindset and really learning off one another. I think the study is super intriguing. It is definitely posted on Google. You could quickly Google it. Um, It's pretty lengthy, but I think it really speaks to a lot of Joe Bowler's work in terms of growth mindset and embedding with that within math for students to be successful.
3: So that quick calculation idea, I think that comes down to somewhat of a cultural uh, norm that we've established for many generations because many uh, generations prior to us, you know, doing quick calculations on the spot was actually a necessity, you know, in the workforce and stuff. So, you know, at some point that was honored, that was... Needed, um, but those days have come and passed now with technology and advancements in those. So, um, going back to the productive struggle idea and having students engage in those, some of the things we've done in the math department is open up our resources as far as that's concerned. One of the things we've done a lot of is is uh, the open middle problems, and the, the nice part about the open middle problems is it's kind of like the optimal level of challenge, right? It's like the Goldilocks idea—you want it to be just hard enough, but just easy enough to access it. So it just kind of keeps you coming back. And I kind of compare math to a video game in a sense, where if a video game's way too easy, it's, uh, we're getting through every level, we're beating the game in a day, it's kind of a boring game and we don't want to return to it, right? Um, But if, on the other side, if the game's way too tough and it can't get past the first level, I can't do anything with it. This, I don't even know why they made this game in the first place, right? You don't want to play that game anymore. And in both cases, you just waste $60, right? You know, you have a game you're never going to play again. But if a game is just difficult enough that it keeps you coming back, and that's where you want to kind of figure out where the mathematics is—is is like it make it just difficult enough that it keeps the kid coming back, keeps the kid trying, keeps the kid struggling with it, and w- knowing that like, okay, even though I'm not getting it yet, I know I can get this, mm-hmm. and it might take another two tries, but I know at some point, like I could feel myself getting there at the end at some point.
1: Yeah, and as um, I mean, as a teacher, and then I feel like. Also, parents, just the way we're kind of praising our kids and talking to our kids when they're completing work in every single subject, I mean, that's huge in the growth mindset. But, I mean, I have to check myself all the time. I'm one that kids get the problem right, and I'm like, oh, you're killing it. You're doing awesome. That's great. Um, but I didn't really say, oh, you're work I like how you work so hard in that. Like, if someone mm-hmm. gets something wrong, there is something to praise about right. them trying and taking that risk, and that should be celebrated. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one of the things, I mean, Jeff and I do in my classroom – Instead of just a generic, like when I was in school, participation grade, you get it right, you get a point, you get it wrong, you get no point. So I was trying to get my kids to talk, trying to get them to speak to each other. And one of the things he suggested to me was like, all right, instead of them getting a point for getting it right or saying pass or phoning a friend and all that kind of good stuff, why don't we, even if they get it wrong, why don't we still give them a point if they can explain where their thought process was? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that honestly has transformed the way that my kids are participating. And they're basically like, one kid in the hallway said, if you if she hears my voice, I'm pretty much getting a point because I can at least explain what I was thinking. And I was like, that was music to my ears. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, yeah, I, I want you guys to talk and it's not going to be perfect. They're not going to understand everything I'm talking about to the T of how I want them to do it. But at the end of the day, if they're talking, their brain is working and they're strengthening those connections and they're getting smarter. So making mistakes makes you get smarter. So without mm-hmm. that, I just feel like you're wasting, you're wasting their time.
2: So and at the element. Okay.
3: Go ahead, Erica. Sorry, Jeff. That's okay.
2: At the elementary level, we're trying to do the same thing. So a lot of the times we're embedding in discussions, we're doing turn-in talks, But I feel like, and I've been working with the teachers and collaborating upon this approach, it's just not enough. The kids really need to get that discussion in with each other. They need to explore problems. So we started embedding in the idea of exploratory learning. And basically what that kind of looks like is, let's say you're teaching a mini lesson and you have base 10 blocks out on the carpet. You have, let's say, um, unifix cubes and another manipulative, and you provide the kids the mathematical problem without telling them anything about it and the kids need to work together in groups to determine how to solve it with what is the appropriate tool how to solve it so the kids are almost learning from each other in their discussions to develop their understanding of the concept before the teacher even goes into it um, another thing that's really huge is that even in elementary school in our warm-ups how we're doing a lot of number sense routines Building in that idea of like thinking classrooms where we post a picture from one of our kits where it's like an image talk, and you say, Okay, what do you notice? How can you build? Um, a multiplication and division fact family based on this picture and the kids go off and they start working on whiteboards with one another and then they have all of these things and then some kids are even extending it to build word problems based Mm -hmm. on one picture but it's all of that rich discussion that's really happening for the kiddos to develop the math and the understanding in and of themselves
0: so hold on i'm going to jump in because i'm going to throw it to you jeff so (laughs) i have i have on my notes something i want to bring up here and erica just tossed it to me so i'm going to redirect it back to jeff So, too frequently, we inadvertently allow our students to assume or learn that language and math are disconnected topics from one another, and I assure you they are not, right? Part of what really trips kids up with math and encourages that disconnection is when you have to read about math word problems, things like that, right? And so we've been working to combat the idea that word problems are not something to avoid, they're something to embrace, because that's the real application, right? We've referenced a couple times, like, when will I ever need to do this? And that's where those scenarios exist. And so in that idea that language supports math, I'm Erica used two words that I was ready to throw to Jeff anyway, thinking classrooms. So one of the books that Mr. Fasheen has really been working hard with his teachers and as his own professional experience is thinking classrooms. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that book and maybe give it a little plug? Cause I know it's really impactful for you and for what we're doing here and talk sure. about the influence it's had on your leadership and our classrooms.
3: So I'm probably butchering the title, but I think it's called building thinking classrooms and mathematics grades K through 12. And the book supports 14 strategies to implement into your classroom and it talks about everything from like how your furniture's arranged to how you grade how you assign homework how you assess things and how you give instruction um i read it during our covet times during the pandemic um and i couldn't put the i couldn't put the book down and for those of you that know me in the room me reading a book cover to cover is a pretty uh astonishing thing so um And, you know, I've had a few opportunities where I've gotten to uh, implement the idea of thinking classrooms. One particular, uh, just recently while I was hopping in for calculus classroom, once uh, Mrs. Jameson here got to try it out for an observation, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's where the magic really does happen in a math classroom. It's where you get the kids to actually talk with one another, get the kids to collaborate, problem solve, think together share ideas, get to know one another, even, you know, we work in a decent sized high school. Um, We have students coming in from multiple districts. You know, it's not just a single feeder district. We got a couple of different districts coming to Roxbury high school. So, you know, sometimes the kids don't know one another, you know, and doing something where kids are working in randomized groups, kids are working up at the boards out of their seats, right? Because one of the things they point out in, in the book is that when a kid sits down, it creates a sense of anonymity. When you're standing up, there's nowhere to hide, right? And you become part of the classroom and you get entrenched within there. Um, getting them talking with one another, working together. Um, it's, it's really exciting to see it happen. Um, you know, and it's something we continue to work on. Uh, it's something we continue to suggest and have ideas with. And it's not something that can be completely transformed overnight. It's, you know, it's a progress. Um, there's things to do with it, but it keeps, you know, it's, It's gotten a cult following. I call it this building thing (laughs) in classrooms over the years. You know, you go to any kind of math workshop or center or something. If there is any kind of uh, you know workshop on building thing in classrooms, it's probably the most crowded. You know, which is exciting. Um, and you know, you go on social media and you see it all over the place and you see all the success and it's everywhere from kindergarten, all the way up to 12th graders. You know, it's not an age limitation on anything. It's not something that you could say, ah, this is a little more elementary or this is a little bit more secondary. No, it works for everybody. You know? So it's really exciting to
0: see. I'm just going to correct you. Go ahead. All right. You, too easily dismissed the idea that you read a book cover to cover, which is part of what we're talking about here, which is the idea that you're always a learner using tools. And so I'm not going to let you sell yourself short. You are a really ambitious learner, all of you are. And so don't do that. Don't do that because we accidentally teach students in the same way that to to be dismissive of things that they may struggle or not really love. So I'm not going to let you get away with that. That's fair. So as we come to a close, we've talked a lot about ideas and things we've done here in the school district to try to help move away from the idea that you're either a math person or you're not a math person. And you guys have shared some amazing things. Um, so the last thing I want to throw out before we wrap this up is if I'm at home listening, I'm a parent. It doesn't matter how old my, my child is or children are um, because... I can still support them in their understanding that math is important, whether it's from an idea where that they might use it someplace in their life down the future, whether it's to encourage a career opportunity, or whether it's, as Melissa told us earlier, uh, just a a strategy for problem solving that they'll use in other ways, right? Knowing how to use the right tool, so to speak. Uh, Erica mentioned before some of the manipulatives and tools we use in the classroom. I don't have those at home as a parent. I don't have base 10 blocks. I don't have Unifix cubes. I may not even know what those are because those are a really specific educational resource. I certainly know what a calculator is. I know that calculators are all all over the place. They're on our phones. And so the last thing I would love for you guys to share ideas about and talk about are if I'm a parent and I'm at home and I'm listening, I'm thinking, wow, that sounds like something I would love to do. I would love to help encourage my child to Embrace math as a strategy for problem solving, or as something they could really dive into, or career opportunities, whatever it may be. Even if it's just as simple as I don't like my kid thinking they're no good at math or they can't be good at math. Do we have any advice or any strategies, things that we can do at home as parents um, to help support our children's growth of growth of growth in loving math? Sorry, that was that was trickier than it should have been. So
3: I'm- one thing I'm going to suggest, I'm going to hop in real quick. Uh, it could be a, something as simple, and this is not very math specific, but it's something Melissa talked about a little bit earlier too is the language we use with children. Um, instead of saying things like, oh, I'm so proud of you, which sound terrific, right? It's an und- unintended consequence mm-hmm. of that. It becomes a very extrins- extrinsic motivational t- technique. So instead of doing things like, oh, I'm so proud of you, or rewarding the accomplishment talk about, you know, hey, you should be proud of yourself for how hard you worked at this, right? Just recently I had a high school senior come running into the class to let me know that she got an A on her test and she was so excited that I was helping her out with and I said, "Look, you should be really proud of yourself. You worked really hard at that." Right? That that simple change of language, which might seem so subtle, but over time, redoing that, saying that and over and over again, shifts the focus away from the product and talks about the process more so.
0: Saying things like, I love that you took a risk. I there love you that you right. persevered. Yes. You worked really hard. Erica, right. you were going to jump in and talk about that too.
2: So I actually was going to say the same kind of thing that you said. Taking away from the product idea and more focusing on the process. Mm-hmm. So taking away from the idea of like, my kids should come home with homework and it should be 10 problems that we should be able to do together. Mm-hmm. There's other really enriching math activities that you could build within real world conversations with your kids. Like just involving your kiddos if you're going to paint a room or involving your kiddos if you're going to build a garden and say like, listen, I'm kind of at a snag. Like I don't know how many flowers I really need here based on the area of my flower bed even though you know the answer, just having your kids involved in those conversations and in those opportunities, they're automatically going to want to start applying their math skills and math understandings without even thinking about it. So my technique, I would say that isn't so much of like the homework approach or what teachers can necessarily give or anything like that, because there's a bunch of resources out there. Trust me, teachers can give worksheets right. if they wanted to they could give opportunities they could tell you use Braining Camp which is right on their class link which provides all the manipulatives that I talked about but what i really think we're talking about here is how rich discussions are and discussions happen when kids have opportunities mm-hmm. and in those discussions is the idea of language being used mm-hmm. too so just making those opportunities for your kiddos at home based on real world things i think that's going to make the biggest impact i know I personally do it with my nephew. Yes, he's only three years old, but I already start to see one-to-one correspondence in him because I'm trying to do activities that he doesn't even know what he's doing. Um, So I think that's my personal recommendation based on also what Jeff kind of said. It doesn't have to be anything fancy,
1: Right, you can build yeah. a budget with your kids. You can take them to a sale. I was going to say, take them to things? the yeah. take
3: them to the grocery store. Right, exactly. Go, go take your. I know it might be a, <laughs> a little rough sometimes, Perfect. but take your kids to the grocery store. Right. You'd be mm-hmm. surprised how much you could learn at the grocery you, store alone.
1: My kids always come in for school, and they're like. Oh, I calculated our tip last night. Awesome. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's great. How'd you do it? Well, I don't do it the way you taught it, but I did it the way my dad showed me and it's way quicker. And I'm like, really? Why don't you show us how we do it way quicker? Because is it faster than how I can do it or better than how I can do it? Again, you leading to strategy. Right. Yes. It doesn't yep. have to be anything fancy. It's all around us. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be the hard factoring or calculus Mm -hmm. or these crazy quadratic terms that some of you guys are probably like, I have no idea what she's talking about right now. It could literally be, oh, we're putting up a soccer goal here. Where should we put it in the yard? Where will it fit? Mm -hmm. Things like that. They're all over the place. And if you find it, your kids are going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. Because in their eyes as a teacher, oh, she's just saying this because she has to tell me. But if they start hearing it from older siblings, from parents, from their friends around us, they're going to start believing that it is math is actually relevant mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in some aspect.
0: All right, I'm I'm really thankful for the time you three have spent with me today to talk about this topic. It's really important to me personally having been a math teacher, you know, the idea that every student can be successful in math, there's a place for every kid to learn and and persevere. I love the problem-solving thing. I'm going to take it with me that math is really a vehicle to teach problem-solving skills. Couple of plugs if you're listening and you're thinking I'd love to read more about um, the the current evolution in mathematics instruction and math learning. Dan Meyer is a great resource. Yep. He's got a great webpage. Joe Baller, we mentioned before, Open Middle, which Jeff That's talked Robert about using. That's Robert Open Middle. Oh, okay. Joe you Boll- know
3: Joe Baller is ucube.org. I know all the websites. That's okay. And,
0: <laughs> and I believe the author, I'm going to butcher the name, I apologize, of Pete Building L- Thinking Cloud. Pete Lydell. Pete, well, I'm glad you said it because I wouldn't have got it right. <laughs> so um, these are all some really great resources. Math is on the precipice of some really exciting changes yes. um, in terms of how we think about math and how it in, in, uh, impacts our lives. So the idea that we can encourage and support every kid is really important to us. So hopefully you've gotten some ideas here about how you can support your, your child. Erica talked about a prior episode that maybe you want to listen to if you haven't that we talked about. And I'm going to give a plug for another one is Mr. Sheen has been doing some really great work to redesign the sequences at the high school when we mm-hmm. were students. And when I taught, all roads led to calculus. And what we're starting to examine and consider um, through our partnership with another resource. You want to give him a shout out? Eric Milo. So Eric is an, um, <laughs> a professor at the, uh, Rowan University yes. in New Jersey. And so we're, we're thinking about how do we redesign our math sequence once youngsters get to the high school, to really meet their needs instead of uh, a somewhat antiquated perspective that all roads lead to calculus, um, where we can really focus on data science and usable, meaningful mathematics in the adult world, not Mm -hmm. to suggest calculus isn't important. It is to some students, just not all students. And so as we continue to examine our program and work to enhance it so it is accessible and important to every kid... How Do do we have something that's important to every kid? We continue to expand. So we're going to have a future episode where Jeff can talk us through the strategies about what we're doing to reorganize the math sequence to make sure that that is actually a true statement for us. Yep. All right. Thank you all. I really appreciate your insight and being a part of this. And thanks for listening.
3: Thank you.